Greetings ladies and mental gents and welcome to this batch video for the web novel Out of Space taken from the website Royal Road. And as always I hope you enjoy the narration and if you do please consider supporting the channel. Chapter 317 Why Can't We Be Friends? Are you saying that these soldiers are actually dead? Joseph asked. Won't they run away or something? I think that they're using some kind of arcane blood for them to slow down the decay, Magister Thorne said. I have some samples of the blood which I'll be analyzing. My, my theory is that it keeps them from decomposing and it also is keeping their bodies alive. And the Darkstone acts as a power source that keeps them working, Dr. Sharon said. But from the looks of the organs of these corpses, what we autopsied, I'd say that they would require constant replacement of organs to maintain their bodies in tip-top conditions. Wait, are you saying that these soldiers were alive when they returned them into Terminators? Joseph asked in shock. For power, how cruel can one get? Magister Thorne gave a shrug. I'm guessing that somewhere amongst the loot we captured there is Imperial Camp, there will be supplies of organs for these soldiers. I would like to request that if they are found as fast as possible, so that I can work my theory involving these Terminators, Magister Thorne said. This way, hopefully we can understand more of how they are made and the soldiers could stop them. Also, we have no inkling as to what spell they were using to animate these soldiers, Magister Thorne said. None of the prisoners we've taken know anything about these soldiers, except that they were being controlled by the organ mages. Even if prisoners seemed afraid of these soldiers, Magister Thorne said, we barely have any information on their origins. Have you all discovered any weakness to these creatures? Joseph asked as they gave an order to Intel officer to follow up on the case. How can we destroy them if they attack us? Here. Dr. Sharon poked a spot in Joseph's chest. The spleen is just next to the stomach on the left. The dark stone is located there, Dr. Sharon explained. Or, if you deal enough damage to the body, they will expire too. Good. Joseph nodded and turned to his officers. Make sure the information is spread to the men and the ground. Yes, sir. Titania glared at the haggard knight Captain Judas and repeated her words stubbornly. I want to accept their offer. Judas shook his head. He was tired of all the constant questioning and the lack of sleep. Yet he kept calm and said slowly like he was talking to a small child. Do you know that once you let this, uh, people into the city, you will lose all control. It's as good as ceding the position to them. I know. But with the situation back home, this is the lesser evil, Titania replied. We barely have enough troops to hold off our enemies should they choose to band together and uproot the Rothschilds. Your three other brothers would not agree to this offer after all. Judas gave a sigh. Not to mention the other bust half-brothers of yours. They're all eyeing fighting over the head position of the family. You know that, right? Judas added. If you accept these people's offer, you are giving your brothers a legitimate reason to denounce you and easier for them to take the seat of the head. There is no point in taking over the seat of the family if our enemies destroy everything around us. Titania said, They promised that as long as we give them some land and an embassy and peace between our people, they will not control what we do. As long as it doesn't bring them deficits, Judas gave a snort and shook his head. You might be the most sensible and level-headed child of the Rothschilds, but could you take a word of a rebel? At this point in time, we have no other choices, Titania pressed a case. My older brothers, knowing their personality, the other houses and barons would likely have approached them to offer for their protection. True, Judas nodded, and you do know that returning to Norsal, there's hundreds of suitors seeking your hand in marriage. 
Titania sighed and bobbed her head. Yes, I know. Everyone will be wanting to take over the Rothschild's wealth and power. That is why I need the strength of the uh, United Nations. This war with them has been too expensive. We barely fought twice, Titania looked out the window while saying, and one major field, and we lost more men than ever in the whole history of the Rothschilds. Do you know how much that'll set us back in both materials and workers? Titania turned back and looked at Judas. We will take years to recover from the mess. This is if we can survive the enemies at home, Titania lamented. We need allies, and the only allies that are willing to help us at this time and unexpected are our enemy. Yet, the United Nation wants the same thing as the others, Judas frowned. Why give power and control to an outsider instead of our own countrymen? Because this United Nations is at least more honorable and trustworthy compared to the bloodsuckers at that city, Titania explained. At least we do not need to keep watching our backs from being stabbed by those money grubbers. So why are you telling me this since you've decided on the next course of action? Judas asked. I, uh... I want you to lead the army back with me. Titania said in a soft voice, I want you to take command of the troops. Troops? <laughs> Judas laughed. What troops do we have left? Didn't the Knights of Silver and even the Rothschild's army get wiped out? I was given their word that they would release the prisoners and also the weapons and armors supplies will be given to us too. Titania answered, They'll also give us captured barges as we turn back home. <laughs> what is left is a bunch of demoralized peasants playing soldier. Judas clenched his chest and laughed hard, his hardest that he'd laughed since he became a prisoner. What can a bunch of rebels do against the rest of the barons and houses might? That is why I need you at command, Titania replied. I need you to turn that rebel into a force that'll give our enemies some pause in their plans. If you give me a few months' time, Judas sobered up and said, I could train them to do a decent fighting force. Not outstanding, but at least they could hold their ground against uh, more common foes. They did say that they would send more of their own troops along with us, Titania added. Their fighting capabilities are way superior compared to any army here. They, Judas's eyes widened. Is that wise? The men have already suffered a great deal under them. If they follow us along, there is other conflicts that would arise between the two forces. I have full confidence that you will be able to resolve that. Titania gave a sweet, nice smile at the surprised expression of Judas, who gave a chuckle at being outmaneuvered by the girl. All right, you win. Judas returned his smile, reminding him of her charm of the girl and the reason why he wanted to marry her. Be out of this hour hole and I'll do this for you. What? Mills jerked up from his seat and surprised after hearing the words of Lieutenant Silverstar. Are you serious? Sit down, Sergeant. Lieutenant Silverstar frowned. I say again, this is an all-volunteer-only mission into the enemy-controlled territory to escort the Rothschild princess back home. But... Mills sat down and a dumbstruck face. You know damn well everyone will volunteer. I know, but this is an important mission. Lieutenant Silverstar cut Mills off. Orders from the top. The mission will be primarily bridging relations between the two sides at the same time, and to ensure Lady Titania takes over as head of the Rothschilds and maintain control of the South region. But, but, Mills blinked rapidly. Only one platoon, 28 men, into an enemy city without support. No reinforcements, no supplies. Pardon my language, sir, but what the frick? I understand your concern, so does High Command. Lieutenant Silverstar gave aside Mills' understandable outburst, for even he had raised the same amount of fuss and points at the CO when he'd heard the mission. The 101st Claymore 1 will be accompanying you. 
together with an intelligence officer. Lieutenant Silverstar explained, You'll be given a landed manor to which you and your men will fortify and place up the supplies and we will be delivered by air. God damn it, spec ops and intel puke, Merle's cursed. This is getting better by the second. Should there be any uh, unforeseen incidents, Lieutenant Silverstar ignored Mills' words and continued on. Extract will be an inland sea, and we'll be a constant patrol roving the area by PT boats. We only have one PT boat operational, Mills whined. One freaking PT boat. How the frick are we going to respond to us in what time with SHTF? That's his why, soldier, the deep voice suddenly spoke from the door behind him. You have guns. Sir, Mills jumped up to attention and greeted the CO. At ease. Joseph gestured him to sit and he leaned against a table facing Mills. I understand your concerns and the mission's tactical options. This mission is very important to ensuring the north border would not be threatened by raids or invasions, Joseph explained to Mills. If both sides could become friends, even with the Emperor sends troops down to attack us, we would have months to weeks of notice instead of just days. The first mission is to ensure the safety of Lady Titania. Joseph stared at Mills, who'd returned the stare unflinchingly. Second mission is to establish a secure embassy within the city. Once the embassy is ready, we will bring in more platoons to reinforce your position, Joseph added. But that can only happen when Haven sends us more troops. As you know, we barely have enough men to go about everywhere. But sir, Mills objected, if we do not have enough troops to send out, why send any at all? A platoon against the whole city, Mills continued. With respect, sir, that's impossible. I know I'm asking a lot from you, Joseph said, but the success of this mission will affect the entire war between us and the Empire. That is why this is a pure volunteer-only mission, Joseph gave a sigh. We'll be providing as much support as we can to the troops on the ground once we have the means and the materials to do so. But sir, still, this is a suicide mission, Moles grumbled. I can't ask my boys to go throw their lives away in the far-off place. I understand, Joseph nodded. If possible, I would want to go too, but High Command wants me here. I would volunteer in a heartbeat. And I'm asking you because Rothschild Princess trusts you, Joseph added, and I know you two became friends despite being on different sides. That is why I hope that we can all become friends and all of these senseless wars and deaths will be over. Damn, Moles gave out a deep breath. All right, count me in. The next few days, preparations were well underway for the Imperials to return back. The prisoners were the first skeptical of the news till Night Captain Judas appeared and gave a speech to the men. With the fears of the men allayed, the Imperials were reorganized and refitted before they marched back towards the Salt Sea, where dozens of captured beach barges awaited them. Following along them, the glances of suspicion, fear, and hatred were the Marines, Claymore One, and several other tagalongs. End of chapter. Chapter 318. The Mission. Haven, Camp Alpha, Commandant's Office. Frank Lee stood at the windows watching the recruits and the daily morning run on the parade ground. On his uniform's shoulder sat two golden globes, signifying his promotion to Lieutenant Colonel. His youthful face mismatched his rank as he turned 23 years old as year. Yet, the steel in his eyes wasn't a lie, as the experience had gone through was a lot more compared to his peers back on Earth. Good morning, sir. The door opened up and Master Sergeant Pike entered with two mugs and hot tea. Morning, Top. He replied to the greeting while still watching the recruits. This batch looks quite tough. 
Yes, sir. Top nodded as he placed the touch down. Good fighters just needed some more familiarization with our society, and they'll be as good as gold. We can squeeze out another two battalions from dispatch of recruits. Top joined Frank at the window and sipped his tea. And we'll have enough leftovers to recover our combat losses on the North Front. With two more battalions in our pocket will greatly help us projecting our forces outwards into the region. Frank nodded and took a mug of tea, especially sending a single platoon off as a forward party into the enemy. Well, it's a risky gamble, one that'll reap a lot of long-term rewards, Top grumbled. Damn, should be part of that team. Can't have you running and doing grunt stuff, Frank replied. I need you here. Too many newbies in the staff, and I need you to straighten them out. I know, sir, but, uh... Top made a grimace. I can't even trust those little craps to properly tie their bootlaces. <laughs> Frank laughed. Relax, Top. They'll do just fine. Crap, Top sighed. I can't just believe a bunch of kids with raging hormones and guns are able to behave themselves properly. Frank smiled and shook his head at Top. Don't worry, intelligence did send someone along to babysit them. Talking about intel pukes, Top frowned. Heard a few complaints coming from the North Front about not informing the ground troops that deploy to lure the enemy in. Yeah, I heard that too. Frank's expression turned serious. Can't say I blame the ground troops since they were the ones taking the brunt of the attack and dying for it. But Operation Command is under Joseph, and he has the call. I'm not going to assign blame here, Frank continued, for I think he did a great job on breaking the enemy. He and his command staff have done a really great job. On a high level, I know all about the need of operational security and stuff, Top replied. But the ground troops don't really care about all of that. What they care for is why isn't there any support there that was promised. And now there is a bad blood between the marines and intelligence, Frank finished Top's sentence. Well, some interdepartment rivalry was always good. Keeps the troops from being too complacent. Well, I hope that that is some minor crap between the two, Top sighed. As long as they don't start to cockblock each other during actual ups. I'll speak to Tavar on this, Frank promised. Make sure that everyone knows who the real enemy is. Aye, it would be great if you could address some troops when you get your time for it, Top added. Makes them feel appreciated. Noted, Frank nodded and turned back to the window where the troops were doing the calisthenics. Two more months for this batch to graduate, and I hope no new armies start popping up and gunning for us. Well, they'll just be grad just before the wedding, Top said. So, uh, what are we planning for the captain and the princess? Hmm, Frank rubbed his chin before answering. Well, I did have a talk with Tabor the other day. And, Top's eyes narrowed, on? Was thinking of annexing away the town of Fallage with the newly graduated boots, Frank winked. Think that'll make a great wedding prift? Orwell's Point Airbase. The loud drone of the twin-engine helo made all the conversation impossible, if not for the radio mics and headsets. Lieutenant Peter kept an eye on the instrument panels of the terribly shaking of the first ever helo built on this planet. The medium-lift helo was a banana-shaped hull. The elves didn't know what a banana was till the pictures of a berry were shown. And yes, the banana was a berry, not a fruit. The owls shared the same sentiments as the human when calling it the C1H Griffin and the flying banana. Peter wanted to paint his halo yellow as a joke but was overruled by Commander Tommy. He pointed out that if he wanted a helo shot down, he would just ground it right there and right now. So, the best he could do with the Air Force grey helo painted was just a yellow band around the rear half of the helo. Now, together with his sister helo at the flank of the cargo full of supplies, 
he and his newly graduated co-pilot took 12-hour flight, making three stops along the way to refuel and nap before finally came within sight of Orwell's airfield. The flight characteristics of the flying banana were rough. Basically, the powerful tandem propeller worked by beating the air into submission and allowing the pig-like kilo to fly. I won't win any beauty pageants, and it wasn't fast compared to the mariners, but its top speed was higher compared to the cobras, which weigh only a fraction of the helo. Nor was it very maneuverable. Its only positive points was that it could carry a lot of cargo in its belly. Peter carefully angled the helo towards the square helipads and reduced the altitude before the beast hovered over the asphalt ground and the rubber slime wheels squeaked when they touched down. Powering down the engines and shutting off all systems, Peter climbed out of the cockpit of his co-pilot while the chief crewman dropped the ramps and the flying banana down and a small army of Air Force personnel welcomed them with clapping and cheers. Feeling smug, Peter waved and bowed at the crowd before one of the ground crew told him to report to Wing Commander at the base. He nodded and gave another bow to the applause of the ground crew before he and his co-pilot headed out over to the terminal building. Welcome to Orwell's Point! A stocky, medium-aged elf dressed in dark green flight suit greeted the four pilots with a smile when they entered the office and signed Wing Commander hanged on the door. I'm Lieutenant Gul'dan, and I'm your Wing Commander here. Good to meet you all, he gestured to the newly arrived pilots to the seats and shaking their hands. A custom learned from the humans. Now we all have very thankful that the supplies you carried over, and I know everyone is tired after the day of flight in cramped cockpit so I'm going to keep this short and sweet. High Command just sent word that the four of your helos will be stationed here for the unseen future, till given further orders. Gul'dan informed the four pilots. As such, you will be assisting the local logistics and also rapid troop deployments, should there be a need. Now, you all know we have sent a platoon of marines and delegates towards one of the main cities in the Empire. Gul'dan continued briefing the pilots. You will also help in making supplier runs or when the embassy is secured. One healer will be stationed there to support the men on the ground. Questions? Goldon asked the pilots. Wingcom, will we be deploying the enemy lines without any onboard weapons? Peter asked. I don't want to be a sitting duck out here. Don't worry about that, Goldon smiled. We'll be doing some modifications to the helos, like extra fuel tanks and machine gun mounts. Great, Peter smiled. Now, uh, where do we bunk in? Solsi, outskirts of the city of Norshelm. The city loomed out in the mists of a like apparition as the second day of the water. The returning Titania and her army finally approached the city's numerous harbors. A half a dozen galleys bearing banners and flags of the Rothschild house came paddling out to greet her, and they formed up protectively around the fleet of barges. Merle stood next to the gunwale of the barge together with Claymore One team members, who had observed the harbor city in the distance quietly. So what do you think of this all? This is crap. It's his bad over the side of the barge. We just reached the back to Orwell's point from bringing home all those people, and no, not a word of appreciation of thanks. It was just new orders, Hitsu mimicked the tone of the intel officer. You go to escort, no rest. All right, you've been grumbling about that whole damn trip, Young complained. My ears are dying. Fark, we didn't even get a chance to rest, Hitsu retorted back. Ever since we came here, it's been one mission here and that freaking mission there. Enough, Teria suddenly spoke up. You are soldiers, suck it up. Well, I can relate to this crap, Moles grinned. Anyway, what can we soldiers do but grumble and complain? 
At least do it in a place where no one can hear us. Daria nodded his head towards a group of Imperial Knights who glared at them with fear and hostile look. Don't want to spoil our good image in their minds. Ha! <laughs> Mills laughed. Well, we're surely fricked when we get into that city. Mills! A strong female voice called out from the barge's castle and Mills turned and saw Titania dressed up in armor. We are reaching the city soon. Yep, I can't tell. Mills gave a quick roll of his eyes. Big, nice city. Thank you. Titania didn't get the message Mills was trying to imply and instead thought she was complimenting the city. I grew up here since I was a baby. Oh, nice. Mills looked around and found the rest of the Claymore One's members giving space to them and winking at him. Hey, um, enjoy your chat, Daria winked. We're gonna go check on our gear and rest. You passed. Mills sighed and turned his attention back to Titania, who gave him a questioning smile. Ah, nothing. Are you nervous about coming back? Mills asked to break the awkward silence between them. All your enemies are waiting for you there, right? I don't know, Titania pouted. I guess I'm more anticipating their looks now. Why is that so? Mills raised an eyebrow at her words. Well, many did not want me to succeed, Titania explained. Even my brother see me as an unfitting to be the heir of the family and schemed many times to take over position from me. At least now, I have some means of fighting back. Titania smiled. You do know that I and my men are not to take part in any plans to help you defeat or kill your enemies, right? Mills narrowed his eyes with a wicked smile. We can only protect you, and that is all. Titania nodded. Of course, as I ask for your help, if the people will think that I'm weak and unfit to be a ruler, but uh, it's nice to know that you're here. <clears throat> Mills turned back to look at the city, his face slightly blushing. Well, I did say that you could find me if you needed a shoulder. I know, Titania sighed softly as she stood shoulder to shoulder with Mills, watching the city as the barges slowly approached the harbor. Thank you. End of chapter. Chapter 319. Desires. Orwell's point, a shadowy figure detached itself from the eaves of the roof which it had been hiding on. It skittered around the edges of the building from one roof to another, careful not to enter the light of the full moon. Every now and then, it paused and checked its surroundings to ensure that no one was following it before it continued on. Finally, it reached the place it wanted and it stayed in one of the nearby building's roofs and observed the area. After several turns of the glass, it was certain that it wasn't followed and that no one was alerted to her presence. It approached the building warily. As the figure slowly emerged from the shadows, the light of the moon highlighted its body, revealing the shapely figure that was clearly a woman. One target reacquired. Two, Roger, gave an eye on her. The woman, wrapped in the dark clothing, crouched low on slowly approaching the house in the middle of the merchant's district. She paused every now and then, staying low before she stepped to the side. Another pause, another turn of her head to check her surroundings, and then another step forward like she was walking a minefield. Finally, she reached the three-story wood brick building and carefully started to climb its walls. She did the same as on the ground, pausing before each grip and changing her direction of ascent till she reached the top floor windows. One, target is attempting to enter the premises over. Two, continue observations. The black-clad woman removed something from her belt and did something to the window before she slipped a piece of wire under the window slits and unlatched the window from within. Shortly after, the figure disappeared into the darkness of the townhouse. All units surround the buildings. Several figures suddenly emerged out of the shadows just like what the woman did earlier. 
They approached the townhouse from all directions and kept the walls and side of the streets despite the ungodly hour, where there wasn't even a soul out. Place looks trapped to hell, one of the shadows stated, as they crouched next to the townhouse's low wall. One, we need a diffuser. Two, stand by. Shortly after, a window lit up from a few within the townhouse on the top floor. The men outside the townhouse instinctively crouched lower to avoid being seen. What in the heavens is she doing? Two, advance and observe closer. They peered over the fancy railings set on the wall, and they slowly climbed over the railings, as they carefully made their way across the garden. The lead shadow suddenly paused and shot a closed fist out. The two other shadows behind him came to a complete halt as they swept their eyes alertly across the lawn. Crap, I sense some magical crap all around us. One, we need a girl mage to come here and defuse the arcane traps here. The lead shadow reported softly. Do, Roger, stand by. As they waited for support, they could see the candles light inside the house moving down from one level to another through the cracks in the window curtains, till it disappeared after the orange glow reached the ground floor. A short figure landed with a thud, followed by oof. All three members of Claymore 2 spun around and hissed at the girl who was rubbing her behind and gave an apologetic bob of her head. Liz winced in pain as she fell off the top railing of the wall fence despite someone helping her over and she landed on her butt, jagging her tailbone painfully. She half waddled and half limped over to where the three serious-looking soldiers before one of the front she recognized as Corporal Pucker, whose little brother was killed by her party back when she was still an adventurer with the hero. He gave her a crude nod of acknowledgement and jerked his head in the path before him and hissed softly. Looks like some magical alarms and traps here. Liz nodded and she crouched next to the beefy soldier and she touched the ground before her with a staff as a globe was erupted from the crystal tip and the path before them lit up with a couple magic formations. It's a level two spell, very nasty. She closed her eyes and concentrated her will, channeling her mana to the tip of her staff and three magic circles grew out. Disarm! Disarm! The revealed magical traps flickered and the glow gently disappeared from view and Liz wiped a bead of sweat from her brow. Phew, it's done. Good. The Claymore 2 Corporal nodded. Stay here and wait for further instructions. But I want to come along. I want to know if she's still the same. Liz quickly said, Let me come. I can help. Corporal Parker stared at Liz for a moment before he nodded. Try anything funny and don't blame me for being rude. Stay behind me at all times. Liz nodded hurriedly and stayed as close as possible as they walked towards the front door. The door is warded, but I can disarm it easily. Disarm! The wards and the door flickered again and Liz cast her spell and disappeared. One of the soldiers removed a chainsaw-like device and he pressed it against the door hinges. A soft buzz and sparking pops out of the hinges as the portable laser cutter melted the hinges to slag. He repeated on the other hinge before keeping the tool away. The other soldiers applied the end of the crowbar against the door and gently pried it open, while the rest of them now loosened the door. Corporal Pocker whispered to Liz, See if your hand can unbolt the bar inside. Liz quickly stretched her hand into the crack, just barely large enough for her slim hand to slip into. She fumbled around before her hand touched the bar and she struggled for a short while before managing to flip the door bar out of its socket and whispered with a triumphant tone, Done! Three soldiers quickly yanked the door away and set it carefully down on the flower bed as they aimed to the suppressed weapons into the dark interior of the townhouse. Sense any more traps? Liz whispered, No, I don't sense anything before us, but uh, I can feel an aura of um, something, but it seems to be coming from below us.
Got it. Corporal Poker gestured to his men. Look for any physical traps. He next hit his radio. One, this is two. Two, send. One, we are in. Checking for any surprises before entering. Over. Two, Roger, we're coming up your six. Out. All clear, his men replied as they carefully examined the entrance to the foyer, only finding a tripwire painted in black paint set at an ankle level. They traced the wire and found that a link to a bell and a half-knocked crossbow set on the table aimed at the chest level. Carefully snipping the wire and the bell, they removed the bolt with the arrowhead with the dark substance was most likely some kind of poison that glittered under the tactical lights. The remaining Claymore crew members led by Sergeant Aztez joined them inside the house. Where's the target? Seems like they're in a basement, Corporal Poker replied in a low voice. This place is too heavily trapped to be normal. I'll come on and check up on the owners and the occupants living here, Sergeant Aztez replied. A small-time merchant and his family, nothing much stands out. Too strange then, Corporal Poker frowned. And why is that girl here? We'll find out soon enough. Evelyn had felt the pull of the idol that she'd hid in a bed frame for days, the dreams in her sleep filled with both joyous and also nightmares as she kept dreaming about Dante. In the happy dream, she dreamt that she had a family with Dante, all filled with passionate lovemaking with him. In the nightmares, she saw Dante dying in her arms and killed over and over again. Finally, driven almost mad, as the idol whispered into her mind that Dante was waiting for her if she sought out the source of it. She had sneaked out as she was certain the guards weren't watching her when she went to sleep. Slipping out of a window was easy for a person with her high agility and skills, after which she slipped out to the keep, bypassing the guards and the walls before entering the city. With the idol carried close to her heart, she could feel the pulsating and pulling her towards one direction which she followed carefully, ensuring that no one was watching or following her. Finally, she found the place that was attracting her over and she woke the sleeping occupant who tried to knife her but she subdued him easily. Before taking the idol out and instantly there was a change in the person's attitude. The chubby male prostrated before her and all signs of hostility were gone. He even helpfully tried to answer her questions and when the question he couldn't answer, he led her down towards the basement where the pull from the idol grew even stronger the closer she approached. The chubby male in his sleeping attire lit the torches lining the walls of the basement as they climbed down the stairs. The entrance to the basement was in one of the study rooms under a table and hidden under a thick layer of carpet, and a false flooring had to be unlocked with a key that was hanging around the flabby neck. As torches slowly brightened the spacious basement, its size surprised Evelyn, as it was as large as a ballroom of a noble's mansion. A ring of squarish pillars held up the roof of the basement, and in the center of the pillar sat a block of old obsidian that glittered avely from the torches. On closer look, the obsidian altar was in an arched shape, and all around the altar were vines and myrtle leaves growing abundantly and spread entwined around the ring of pillars. The ring of pillars was made out of white marble and had naked figures and wings hugging each other. Evelyn could feel the pull of the idol kept next to her chest growing so strong that it felt like the idol would fly out from her clothes. As she approached the altar cautiously, while the chubby cultist smiled brightly at the side, watching her actions with a hint of amusement. What are you? Evelyn whispered as she took a step closer and removed the worn idol, which looked like two worms entwined together in tiny wings. She noticed the scent of the smell like roses was growing thicker, and she stood over the obsidian altar. Bend over! The chubby cultist suddenly spoke, and unknowingly, he had appeared behind her, 
Evelyn felt dizzy from the sweat cloying scent of the perfume that appeared to be coming from the burnt torches. She basically resisted as the cultists bent her over the obsidian altar, which seemed to fit her body ankle just nicely. She tried to push herself up, but her hands and legs appeared to be bound with myrtle vines and magically held her down. What are you doing? she cried out in a daze. Stop! Where is Dante? I am Dante, the cultist said. She turned her head and saw the person slamming against her, and her eyes softened as she saw the love of her life grinning at her. Dante, you're back! End of chapter Chapter 320 Sins and Depravity Liz followed closely behind Claymore two soldiers as they checked each room. The seven Claymore soldiers split into two teams, with Liz searching the ground floor with one of them while the other team headed upstairs stealthily to secure the premises. They found the entrance to the basement in one of the study rooms, but did not enter until they ensured the entire building was cleared. Surprisingly, they found no one else living in the townhouse, only a bedroom that looked recently slept in, and none of the family members that was said to be living here was found in any of the other rooms. The whole team by then had gathered the opening entrance as they cautiously climbed the wooden stairs and creaked with each step. As they went deeper, a sweet scent drifted up the air and smell got thicker as they passed the torches. Cover your noses, Sergeant Astaire quickly ordered. Try not to breathe in that stuff. The men quickly wrapped scarves or used their uniforms to cover their noses, while Liz used her voluptuous robes to cover her nose. As they descended deeper, they could hear the rhythmic slapping sound, followed by the grunts and moans. The sounds got louder and louder, and they emerged from the stairs into a grand vista with pillars surrounding the altar in its middle. Liz blurted out as she witnessed the scene, her face blushing as she saw the intimate act. Freeze! Sergeant Aztec yelled as he gestured to the men to spread out or cover the area. Stop what you're doing and put your hands in the air now. Stop what you're doing now. Sergeant Aztec called out again and began ignoring once more. He drew his service revolver and fired the shot at the ceiling. A sharp report of the revolver seemed to break the spell of the two instantly froze in their actions and stared at Aztec like he was a ghost. Who are you? 101st, Sergeant Aztec replied and pointed to the male to move to the side. Stand there and show me those hands. Suddenly, a peat of laughter came from Evelyn, who was face down on the altar. Her laughter seemed to give the male some kind of confidence and gave a smile of wonder before he kneeled down and whispered with reverence, My queen! The myrtle and vines started to wriggle as Evelyn was no longer bound by the plants. She straightened up and stretched her body before the myrtle vines coiled around her naked body, creating some sort of form-fitting leafy dress that left nothing to the imagination. Ah, this body is not too bad. She caressed her own body, running her hands over the curves seductively. The men all forced that they were stared at her actions. Their weapons lowered slightly as their eyes followed the path of a hand straining over her body. Welcome, my queen, to this realm. The cultist kneeled down below, kissing the toes fervently. My queen! Magic missile! Suddenly, a cry came out from behind one of the pillars, followed by a bolt of energy that flew towards Evelyn. The cultist kneeling before her suddenly leapt up and blocked the spell with his body. Evelyn kicked the smiling corpse away with her feet inside. It's hard to get good followers, you know. Who? What are you? Liz cried out as she brandished her staff before her, readying her spell to be cast. Me? Evelyn looked down at her body before she spun on the spot. I'm Evelyn. Don't you recognize me? No. 
Liz was very close to panicking as sweat rolled down her spine and soaked her robes. She sneaked a glance at the rest of the Claymore 2 team members, but they seemed to be caught in some kind of glamour and were unable to shake the effects off. You look like her and sound like her, but you are not her. I see, Evelyn giggled and she clapped. Well, I must say that you are correct. The soul of this vessel is weak. The entity possessing Evelyn said she desired so hard for the one she loved to return, so I granted her her desire in exchange for her body. Now she is forever living in a place filled with happy memories. The entity smiled. Forever in bliss. Isn't that wonderful? What did you do? Liz was spoiled with horror. Return her soul back now. Oh, her soul was already damaged beyond heeding. If not, Evelyn waved her hand dismissively. Besides, she can make love with her Dante all day and night long, giving in to their love and desires. Enough! Liz gritted her teeth hard. Stop defining her soul! Oh, you didn't know. The entity laughed at Liz's expression. They were making love almost every night when you were all together and poor. Elizabeth, always in the dark about their relationship. Say, do you desire Dante too? The entity suddenly asked while clapping hands together. I can give you Dante, too, if you so desire for him, too. <laughs> no! Stop! Liz took a step back and waved the mental images slammed into her mind, making her see Dante's charming smile. That handsome face, that white pearly teeth and the lips that were about to kiss her. No! The entity, controlling Evelyn, smiled sweetly as she watched Liz stumbling backwards from a psychic attack, and she bent down and fished out a vial of red liquid from the remains of her clothes. Now this is really useful. He strolled forward towards the nearest Claymore two soldiers and beamed at her approach. His rifle falling on the sling from the slack hands, she reached up with both hands and cupped the soldier's face, and just where she was about to kiss him, a loud metal clank could be heard right next to them. She looked down in surprise at the dark tube rolling on the floor to her feet, and for a moment her teasing expression changed to a frown. What is that? The tube suddenly popped and the eardrum burst in crack and flash of light and bright. Her eyes were instantly blinded and tearing. She screamed in shock and pain, rearing back at the stunned confusion. Ah! Liz spat out a mouth full of blood as she had bit her tongue to force herself out of the entrapment spell. She took the opportunity when that not Evelyn was distracted with one of the soldiers to grab a flashbang from the pouch of Corporal Pocker and from her observations she roughly knew how to use it. Put a finger into the ring and pull the ring out. Throw the whole flashbang at the not Evelyn thing and take over. Liz used the body of Corporal Pocker as cover as she covered both her ears and closed her eyes tightly. Even then, the sharps on the crack made her ears ring, but it did not disable her, unlike the not Evelyn. The spell struck the soldiers all cried out in pain and shock as the effects of the flashbang slammed into them. Liz raised her staff and screamed, chanted a spell. Magic missile! Bolts of pure magical energy erupted out from the tip of her staff as they shot off in the direction she pointed her staff, at which was where the not Evelyn was clattering her face and screaming. The bolts of energy slammed into Evelyn and detonated, flipping her backwards and burning off leaves and vines. Evelyn landed on the carpet of myrtle leaves and with a thud and remaining unmoving on the spot. Liz wrapped her staff on the helmeted head of Corporal Pucker kneeling on the ground and hissed the word, Wake up! Aren't you supposed to watch over me? All right, all right, stop that. Corporal Parker growled as he shook his head, cleared the ringing in his ears, and blinked his eyes rapidly to clear the stubborn white spot in his vision. What the hell are you hitting me for? 
Liz gave one final rap of her staff before she was satisfied. Your fault by getting charmed by her. What? Corporal Parker stumbled to his feet and looked in confusion, barely about to see clearly. What happened? Men. Liz rubbed her sore tongue and cast a quick recovery spell. Something took over Evelyn's soul. I don't know what, but... Uh, Liz gestured sadly to the body laying in the patch of greenery. I think I killed her. Corporal Parker picked up his weapon and gripped it tightly before he gestured Liz towards the rest of the Claymore 2 troops. Go check on them, see if they're all right. He approached the body of Evelyn cautiously as she saw a couple of burn marks on her otherwise perfect body. He prodded her still body with his rifle barrel and cursed as he saw her fingers twitched. She's still alive! Shoot or arrest, Corporal Parker yelled as he backed off from the body. Sarge! Shoot that witch! Sergeant Anstaz hissed as he was being looked at after startled Liz. Take her out now! Corporal Parker whipped up his rifle and upon hearing the order fired the semi-automatic M2 Mage Ripper carbine. His finger rapidly stroking the trigger and the rifle butt kicking his shoulder with each stroke. Smoking rifle casings spewed out of the tinct against the cold rock floor as Parker shot up the body with patches of leaves. Reloading! By this time, most of the troops had recovered their wits and senses and carefully surrounded the body at a safe distance. One of the soldiers asked as he eyed the scene and asked, What the hell happened? You guys got hit by some kind of charm spell, Liz explained as she peered at Evelyn's body. And I think Ev- Evelyn has been taken over by something here. Damn cults! Another of the soldiers cursed and spat. We need to burn down all the bloody cults. I hear you, brother. Corporal Parker nodded and picked up a vial of dragon's blood from the ground and sealed it into a clear bag. So think she's truly dead. Wonder what she wants to do with this thing. Most likely she wants to revive her boyfriend. Crazy witch. Anyway, cut off her head and salt and burn her body, Sergeant Ast has said. Standard operating procedure. Right, SOP for dealing with any godly or ungodly crap. Corporal Parker drew out his sword and bayonet and began a hasty work while Liz turned away unable to bear witness to the demise of her once friend and party member. As Parker hacked the head off, the head suddenly screamed, surprising him and making him stumble back while the others jumped up in weariness. Silly mortals! The grotesque head of Evelyn giggled. I am immortal. Giving the flesh puppet is just a minor inconvenience to me. I have thousands of followers that are willing to give their bodies to me. Sergeant Aztec stopped his men who were about to douse the head with salt and alcohol. He leaned forward and sneered. Well, as long as it inconvenienced you, it makes me happy. Do it. Sergeant Aztec gestured to his men as he stepped back while the face of Evelyn contorted in an ugly way with rage. Enjoy the barbecue. Yeah! Their head could only growl and scream as Claymore two men dumped the packs of salt over the body and head before flasks of alcohol were emptied and matches were thrown onto the body, igniting the mess. I will find you. I'll make you pay for this insult. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the author from the link down below. Otherwise, if you wish to support this channel, there are numerous ways to do so, like liking, subscribing, and possibly even becoming a patron. Otherwise, the easiest way would be to share. And until the next video, I hope that you all have a good one, and I'll see you then. Cheers.